In this Bible class, I'm going to essentially walk through the content of a little book by a guy named Matthew Bates called The Gospel Precisely. But I've given you really detailed notes because I'm not just going to read the book to you or something like that. I've tried to go through it and um, take the best parts of it and summarize those and then expand on it where I think that it could be better. So pretty much, if Matthew Bates had sent this to me in a pre-publication edition, I'm giving you what I would have recommended to him to make his book better. Um, it's fine as it is, but I, I feel like there are some places that we can um, expand on it, and some of his sections are a little repetitive, so I feel like we could make those a little more concise. So that's what this Bible class is over the next four weeks as we think about the gospel. Now, you might be thinking, Christians don't need to talk about the gospel that much because we got it, you know, we, we became Christians and now we can move on beyond the gospel or something like that. I don't know that anyone in our church would actually say something like that, but we can sometimes start to think that way or we can miss important gospel elements and then we might start thinking, our church isn't preaching the gospel as often as we think it should. Um, sometimes I've had a couple conversations with people, uh, you know, who will remain unnamed in this setting who have said something like, Aaron, you're not preaching the gospel enough in your sermons. And, and I want to say sometimes that maybe uh, people have a limited conception of the gospel and aren't realizing that there are gospel details that are present they, they just aren't including them in their definition of the gospel. So hopefully this will broaden and deepen our conception of the gospel and equip each of us to share the gospel with other people. We want to share the gospel with our unbelieving friends and neighbors and coworkers, and we want to do it in a biblical way. We want to share the biblical gospel, and I hope that this will help us in that endeavor. All right, so what what is the gospel? I think the answer to this question, the importance of it, can't be overstated because the gospel is central to the Christian faith. Without the gospel, Christianity doesn't have anything to offer. In fact, without the gospel, Christianity does more damage than it does good. I think most of us can think of Christian circles that either we've been a part of or that we've heard about or that we can see in church history, like the Crusades or something like that, where there's a gospelist Christianity that does more damage than it does good. So we have to get the gospel right. There are at least four reasons I want to point out on why we should care about this and why we should deepen our understanding of the gospel. First, reflection on the gospel is important because the gospel is for the whole of the Christian life, not just for conversion. So I grew up in a world that said the gospel was pretty much how you got into the Christian faith, and you kind of left it behind after that. Um, so when there was this big gospel recovery movement in the 2000s that brought about things like the Gospel Coalition and conferences like Together for the Gospel, and then all of the language of gospel-centered, gospel-driven, there are some bad things about that movement because everything became the gospel which was not helpful either because then nothing really is distinctly the gospel. But where I was in college, that was super helpful because it was almost like the gospel was just for conversion. It wasn't for all of life. But we want to be clear that the gospel is for all of life. 
Second, reflection on the gospel is important because many Christians get the gospel wrong, either by ignoring central components of the gospel or inappropriately emphasizing aspects of the gospel message at the exclusion of its core central truths. So sometimes Christians can home in on one portion of the gospel that's actually at the edge. It's not really the center of the gospel. Uh, And I think one of the ones that I talk about all the time is talking about the gospel as if it's all about how you get to heaven when you die. Well, if you read the New Testament, there's almost nothing about getting to heaven when you die. And in fact, that, that phrase never shows up. The apostles never ask the question, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you'll go if you died today? But that's the way that I was taught to talk about the gospel. Well, the gospel has something to say about that, but that's not the central message of the gospel. That's way, way, way on the outer edge. So we need to make sure that we're emphasizing the right things when we talk about the gospel. And then, of course, there are a lot of false gospels that are preached, either culturally or in the church, and we need to be able to detect that and then to preach the true gospel instead. Many of my friends who have left the faith, I, I think, left a shallow or even false gospel, and they've just not even really heard the true gospel. And the false gospel that the, or shallow gospel that they heard just never delivered anything for them. So they figured there's nothing here. There's nothing to it. And, and I feel really sorry for those people because now they've almost turned themselves off to the gospel altogether. So we want to make sure that we get it right and we don't push people away by giving them empty promises um, and calling that the gospel. Third, reflection on the gospel is important because non-Christians need to hear the biblical gospel. If we're not clear on what the gospel is, how will non-Christians be clear on what the gospel is? And this is what I've already been saying. I think some non-Christians reject Christianity because they've only heard incomplete or misguided articulations of the gospel. And we don't want to do that. We want to give them the true gospel. Fourth, reflection on the gospel is important because the gospel communicates the mission of God and it invites us to participate in it. And it more than invites us, it compels us, it commands us to participate in God's redemptive work in the world. So have you ever thought about the gospel as something that you participate in? Or, or have you thought about, I mean, how, how would you phrase the appropriate response to the gospel? Well, Paul describes the appropriate response to the gospel as the obedience of faith. He does this twice in Romans. Well, that's a maybe a little bit of a weird answer. You know, how should you respond to the gospel? With the obedience of faith. That's the biblical answer. Um, so we need, we need to be careful as we think about what the gospel is so that we can enter actively as we participate in God's mission of redemption. Because the gospel is so central to Christianity and because it's so often misunderstood, it's really important for us to identify our method for establishing the content of the gospel. How are we going to go about uh, defining the gospel? Some, some people will go about defining the gospel by just repeating whatever they've heard um, or whatever they think they've heard or maybe grabbing a track that they got, you know, a gospel track, like one of these $1 million bills that has the gospel on it. Those are the worst, by the way. So if you ever are given like a pack of things that look like $20 bills but are fake and they have the gospel message on them or something, I repeat, do not leave that as a tip for your waiter. 
That, that is like the worst thing you can do is you um, give out the gospel. That, that is just awful. Okay, so don't, don't do anything like that. Um, I, uh, this is an aside. I, in high school for three months, or in college for three months, worked at Taco Bell. And I only worked there because it was, it, it was a joke. I, I was in line with a friend and he needed a job and I was teasing him about, hey, Taco Bell's hiring, you, you should take this job. And the manager came over and offered me a job. Um, and I took it just to be silly. And I worked there for three months. But I worked some on Sunday nights. And um, in the world I was in, if you weren't in church on Sunday night, you probably weren't a Christian. And so this church had let out and a bunch of people had come to Taco Bell for, you know, food or something. And, and they gave me one of these, like, money-looking tracks, just assuming I wasn't a Christian. I felt a little bit offended by that. Maybe I shouldn't have been. But I was thinking, man, what if my coworkers were on the receiving end of this? Like, that's just not very nice. I was very happy for a moment thinking this person who I recognized from our church, who didn't recognize me, did recognize me and was slipping me a little, like, $20 cash tip. Well, that's not what it was. They thought I wasn't a Christian, apparently. So we, we want to articulate the gospel clearly, but the basis of our articulation, I think, ought to be the, the Bible's own summaries of the gospel. This is what I was hinting at last week. If your 30-second elevator pitch of the gospel is radically different from the Apostle Paul's, for example, one of them might be less accurate than the other, and it's not the Apostle Paul's. His is right. So, so we need to conform our brief expressions of the gospel to emphasize the things that the apostles emphasize. Uh, so we need to give pride of place to the scripture's own summaries. And then we need to discover how the gospel fits into God's wider story and purposes. So the gospel isn't everything in the Bible, but if it is an important part of what's in the Bible. So we can't make every verse the gospel or something like that, but we need to find out how the gospel relates to God's wider purposes in the Bible. Third, we need to differentiate between the gospel and closely related ideas, such as repentance, forgiveness, and faith. So I, I want to suggest that the gospel um, has implications for all of life, including things like forgiveness of sin and faith and heaven and all of these things. But we can't make one of the implications of the gospel or the results of the gospel the gospel itself. If we sever all of these benefits of the gospel from its source, then they have nothing to stand on. Uh, so we'll get into this in a few moments, but very often what happens in our gospel presentations is there's a tip of the hat to Jesus, and then there's this long listing of all the benefits of the gospel. Uh, but if, that, if, we try, if we separate the benefits of Christ from Christ himself, we have a problem because we don't have any of them. So if you reflect on your own experience of hearing the gospel, whether through reading Christian tracts or through programs like Evangelism Explosion, you'll probably recognize that many popular evangelistic presentations cherry-pick texts of scripture to construct a gospel message that does not sound like the summaries of the gospel that are found in the Bible. I, I appreciate things like the Romans Road, as it's called, but what that is is a cherry-picking of texts from the book of Romans, taking them out of context and constructing a presentation of the gospel that's quite different from the one that Paul actually presents in the book of Romans. So hopefully we're all trained enough in biblical interpretation to realize that you can't just cherry pick texts and then squash them together and, and say this is what the gospel message is. 
Instead, we need to hear these texts in their context. And that's why I think we should give pride of place to these brief summaries of the gospel This by the biblical authors. This is how they did it. So instead of extracting random verses throughout Romans, why not grab onto the summary of the gospel in Romans, in Romans 1, 1 through 3 or whatever it is. We'll see that later on. All right, so this morning we're just looking at the introduction of this book in the first chapter. What is the gospel? Here's his brief answer. Jesus is the saving king. He preexisted with God the Father. In accordance with God's promises, Jesus became human in the line of David, died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected on the third day, was seen, was installed as king at God's right hand, sent the Spirit, and will return to rule. Can anyone identify the text of scripture where this is coming from? I'll give you a hint. It's Pauline or Pauline. First, exactly, 1 Corinthians 15. You know, the gospel that Paul is summarizing there. Almost all of it comes from that section. Now, there are some additional pieces here. But I think even as you hear this, you'll start to detect a difference between the biblical summaries of the gospel and some popular summaries of the gospel. Now, you'll need to hang in there uh, because I want to convince you that this is the better way. My first response as I started to think about this was, well, I want to get right to the relevance for someone who doesn't know anything about the Bible. So that's why we end up emphasizing um, going to heaven when you die or something like that. But that's not what the biblical authors did. So we need to restrain ourselves and submit ourselves to their articulations of the gospel. Yeah, so yeah, so we'll, we'll get to... Oh, you're saying Paul adds some things that aren't critical. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 1 Corinthians doesn't say anything about him sending the Spirit, for example. Um, so we'll get to some other... Uh, summaries of the gospel in Paul. Romans 1, for example, does. Yeah, yeah. So we'll look at Romans 1, where he says, according to his human lineage, a descendant of David, according to the Holy Spirit, appointed as the Son of God in power. So both of these things are important, because if we disconnect Jesus from Davidic lineage, we disconnect him from the Old Testament. You know, that that's a problem. So well, I think it'll become clear why all of these things are in here by the end of our time, but that's a good observation. Paul doesn't include all of these in Romans 15, 1 through 5 or whatever it is, um, but other summaries have them. All right, so my question that I don't want you to answer out loud is how closely would your answer to the question, what is the gospel, resemble this one or some of the summaries of, in scripture that are coming to mind? Um, what What would you leave out that's present here? Or what do you think this guy needs to add? And more importantly, which biblical texts are you drawing from as you construct your own summary of the gospel? These are questions that should be in our minds. There are many false gospels. We need the real gospel. That's the whole point here. But false false gospels often blend pop culture with a spiritual sensibility, and they make promises that they can never deliver upon. That's one of the major problems with these false gospels is that they're counterfeit and they leave people hurt and broken and lifeless. Most false gospels have one thing in common. They focus on an internal path to self-discovery as if all that you need in your life is to be your authentic self, to find yourself so that you can truly be you, whatever that means. Uh, But it's an essentially self-centered message. And when we're really honest, 
think each of us sense that we can't be the answer to our own problems. The deeper we go on this journey of self-discovery, the more problems that we actually find. But there's, if, if there's one term that I would use to describe almost every false gospel, it would be the term self-centered or self-oriented. And, and unfortunately, many Christian articulations of the gospel are also all about the self. They have very little to say about Jesus or about God. The true gospel is very Christ-centered, and it's marked by suffering and sacrifice. Uh, so one, one way of detecting a false gospel is asking, does it demand sacrifice or not? And if not, it's probably a false gospel. We need a gospel that's radically different than the supposed good news of self-discovery. We need a gospel that encourages us toward a cross-shaped allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom with the goal of transformation into his suffering for others yet glorified image. I mean, if you don't think of the gospel as something that produces you as a suffering yet becoming glorified image of Christ, then I think your gospel isn't the right gospel. If, if your gospel presents an image of you getting all the best things in life or having an easy life or you escaping all of the problems in life, that, that's not the gospel of the scriptures. This gospel calls us to a suffering yet glorified way of life. We call this a cruciform way of life. Jesus is the Christ. In the Bible, Jesus is regularly referred to as the Christ or the Messiah, and that's in connection with the gospel message. So in Acts 5.42, for example, every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's what the good news is. The good news is not fundamentally something about you or me. The good news, the gospel, is fundamentally that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the most basic beating heart of the gospel. The apostles proclaimed the gospel, and the content of the gospel is the simple message that Jesus is the Messiah. Other evangelistic preaching in the New Testament makes the same point. Acts 9.22, they proclaimed the Messiah to them. So they, they scattered, they went on their way preaching the gospel, and this is the content of their message, the Messiah. Um, Saul confounded the Jews, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, Paul is in the synagogue explaining and proving that it is necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. And here's that central theme again, that Jesus is this Messiah. Uh, when Saul and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the central theme of Paul's preaching. Um, this guy, Apollos, after he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace believe, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the content of their gospel proclamation. I don't know that this is truly the content of many gospel proclamations that I've heard. It's almost like we skip over that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, it is true that modern hearers will need further elaboration on what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, for that focus to be clear, but Jesus is the focus in Jesus as Messiah. While many modern evangelistic summaries simply say, Jesus died for my sins, or you can know you will go to heaven when you die, that is not the simple gospel proclamation of the apostles. Their basic message is that Jesus is the Messiah. 
So what is the meaning of Messiah or Christ? Messiah and Christ are the same term. Um, Messiah, the Hebrew term, and Christ, the Greek term, and they both identify someone who's been anointed with oil. So it's a general term. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with holy fluid, oil, in order to be devoted for special purposes in the Old Testament. So any individual who'd who had been set apart in this way could be referred to as God's anointed or God's Messiah or God's Christ. They're all the same terms. So in Psalm 2, for example, in Psalm 2.2, it talks about the Lord and his anointed. I don't know why it's translated that way. Messiah, you know, it can be anointed Messiah. Christ is the way it's translated in the Greek Old Testament. These are all the same terms referring to the same thing. Someone who has been specially designated for God's purposes in a prophetic, priestly, or kingly role. And as we'll come to find, Jesus is the Messiah designated in all of those roles, but most fundamentally in the kingly role. He's the priest king, the prophetic king. Um, In the Old Testament, Israel's story regularly involves God anointing people to the roles of prophet, priest, or king in order to accomplish his redemptive purposes and to establish his kingdom on earth. Israel did not always respond favorably to God's anointed and eventually turned away from God. So God responded by turning away from Israel and by sending them into exile. Eventually, God brought Israel out of exile back to their homeland where prophets and priests were once again anointed for service to God. But a king was not anointed. Instead, there was a promise that God would appoint a king in the future who would fully restore his people and fully bring about God's kingdom on earth. Israel's hopes were wrapped up in the Messiah king who would belong to the family line of Israel's greatest king, David. So when we talk about Jesus as the Messiah, we talk about him as the fulfillment of Israel's story, as the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And the surprising thing in these prophecies is that God's anointed, God's Messiah, would be king not only over Israel, but over the entire world. He'd be the king for all of the nations. So Christ is a Greek word for Messiah. When we get to the New Testament, English translations aren't consistent. Sometimes they'll use both, one or the other, Christ or Messiah. Every time you see Christ or Messiah, you should think anointed king or something like that. In, in some contexts where it's talking about Christ's priestly role, you can think anointed priest. Uh, but generally, you should be thinking whenever you see Christ, just here in your head, king, the king, Jesus the king, or king Jesus. So the gospel is the declaration that Jesus is this long-awaited king. So surprise, the gospel is political. This future Christ king would not only lead over spiritual affairs, but also exercise real-world political power to restore the fortunes of his downtrodden people. And not only of his own people, the Jews, but also the non-Jewish nations, the Gentiles, would experience the effects of the Messiah's sovereignty. In this way, the Christ would be a universal king. That the good news for all humanity revolves around the appointment of a king might be surprising or even disconcerting, especially for people like us who have identified alternative forms of government as ideal for bringing about human flourishing. So for those of us who have been part of a democratic republic for all of our lives and have always heard the greatest thing you could do for another country is to uh, set up a democracy in their land, it might be surprising that the way that God will bring about human flourishing is through a monarchy with his own appointed representative. 
in our modern world of voting consensus and representative government, who would dream that a king is God's ultimate good news? I, I don't think we can overstate the significance. And one of the immediate implications of the gospel is that Christians who tend to identify the government and favored political leaders as the source of human hope, flourishing and hope need to remember the reality that King Jesus will replace every governmental system, even a democratic republic, with his righteous monarchical rule. That should loosen our attachment to the hope that we put in political leaders in governmental systems. This is what I was trying to say last week a little bit, but think about that. God's plan for human flourishing and hope will be in de-establishing all other forms of government and appointing his king over all the nations forever. The, the other aspect of that, as we'll get to you in a moment here, is that the gospel can never then be something private. It can't, our response to it can't just be inner and spiritual. It has to take shape in the way that we organize and arrange our lives. So the king proclaims his kingdom. The Gospel of Mark is commonly considered the first written gospel record, even though it's second to Matthew in the canonical arrangement. I don't think it matters if Matthew or Mark has priority. This is a big scholarly debate, um, but Mark is often considered the first one. This is how I think about the Gospels. I, I think about... Um, the Gospel of Mark is like a Reader's Digest edition declaring Jesus. I think about the Gospel of Luke as like the official record um, because there are two witnesses for everything. I mean, it's the only one that has the two thieves on the cross where it gives them any attention. Almost everything comes in sets of two. It's like he's establishing two witnesses to give like the official journalistic record of Jesus. I think of Matthew as more of a memoir of Jesus, like, um, you know, a biography memoir type thing. And then the Gospel of John, like the philosopher's edition of Jesus's identity. That's why there's so much about Jesus as the logos, the word. It doesn't start with him being born in a manger. It starts with his preexistence as the word. So the Gospels each have different purposes that they're accomplishing, but all of them are pointing attention to Jesus as the king and son of God. Mark does this especially as he, in the first line of his gospel, connects Jesus to kingship. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Remember Christ, this anointed king. You should hear that in your mind. Significantly, the promised king is God's own son, and we'll talk about that more in future weeks. But the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is the promised king, and this king, to no surprise, proclaimed a message about his kingdom. So we'll see this in a second, but the first preaching of Jesus was about the gospel of the kingdom. Everything about the gospel is infused with royal kingship and in Christ's kingdom. There are three movements in the opening to Mark's gospel. Movement one, Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and the father announced that Jesus was his beloved son. This scene is significant for two reasons. First, in the ancient world, rulers were often recognized through augury. Augury is this practice of interpreting signs through the behavior of birds. So the dove descending on Jesus would have been interpreted as a sign of his appointment as a ruler. So Roman rulers would establish their authority based on like an eagle that descended near them or something. Augury was a big thing in appointing rulers. And even now, you'll 
do some etymological detective work when you talk about someone's inauguration. You hear augury, even in the way that we talk about the appointment of political rulers. So this dove descending on Jesus was identifying him as a different kind of king, not with the eagle of Rome, but with the peaceful dove that, that identified him as the king. But then second, when the father identifies Jesus as his son in connection with this royal identification, Psalm 2 comes to mind, where God identifies his anointed king to rule over all the nations of the world. God speaks using this kingly language, similar to the baptismal scene when he said, you are my son, today I have become your father, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So the New Testament authors often appeal to Psalm 2, as when they talk about Jesus fulfilling what was prophesied in the, the scriptures. Then there's a second movement where Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness among wild animals. This temptation contrasts with the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden among domesticated creatures, these creatures that they had named and exercised authority over. Where they failed in a setting of ease and comfort, Jesus succeeded in a setting of difficulty and discomfort. This indicates that Jesus is rewriting the story of humanity with his own life. If all of the problems of the world can, in some sense, be attributed back to Adam and Eve's failure, then the solution to that problem can be identified with the new Adam, King Jesus, the Son of God, appointed as king over all the nations. Then movement three, Jesus' very first public act was to declare the gospel of the kingdom. He went to Galilee proclaiming the good news, or gospel, you know, people translate, I don't know why some translations will translate it differently at different times. In the CSB, for example, here it translates euangelion is good news, and in other places it'll translate it as gospel. They're the same thing, though. Um, the, the here's the gospel of God, according to Jesus. So if you want Jesus's declaration of the gospel, this is it. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. So the king begins by establishing his kingdom. We'll talk more about repentance in the coming weeks, but we need to grab onto this. The king is declaring a message that forms his kingdom. So it's important to notice that Jesus did not consider himself a spiritual guru. Instead, he considered himself a king, and he called people to respond to his kingly identity. This means that the gospel of the kingdom is not about a private religious decision, Instead, it compels political responses with social implications to the public announcement of a new king. Jesus lived at a time when political insurrections were common. Israel, under this imperial oppression of Rome, did not forget the prophecies that God would appoint his Messiah, his Christ, and that God's kingdom would be established once again in Israel. Some political figures claimed to be this promised king and attempted to overthrow Roman rule, and always to disastrous effects, even if they succeeded for some moments. The, these insurrections, read about them in the Maccabees, grab someone's Bible that has an apocrypha, read the, the book of 1 and 2 Mac, Maccabees, and you'll hear about the really brutal and devastating effects of these insurrections. So, when Jesus declares himself as king and establishes his kingdom, we're supposed to ask, is Jesus just starting another insurrection attempt. Uh, the answer to this question is complicated because Jesus makes clear that though God always reigns, sometimes his rule is subtle and at other times obvious, and we're trying to figure out how obvious is God's 
kingdom going to be here. Um, but Jesus proclaims that an era dominated by God's explicit reign was emerging, but it was going to do so in ironic and unexpected ways. So instead of starting by dethroning the sources of power with force, it would subvert those powers with sacrifice and self-giving, and it, the kingdom is first experienced by the down and out. God's reign would become especially clear for the poor, the blind, the oppressed, and the captives. That's what Jesus says in Luke 4 when he reads from Isaiah 61 and says, this has been fulfilled in your midst. So every time Jesus healed somebody or caused the blind to see and declared the forgiveness of sins and, and released people from the oppression of demonic forces, the kingdom is becoming visible through those actions. God's kingdom that was promised in Isaiah especially is being made known. Still, Jesus said that his kingdom is not from this world, meaning that his kingly authority did not originate in the powers of the world. So his king, kingship was not like Herod. Herod got his kingly authority from Rome. Jesus's kingly authority comes from a different realm. It comes from God himself. However, the establishment of his kingdom wouldn't come through violent subversion, but through self-sacrifice. He would not conquer by taking the lives of existing rulers, but by giving up his own. And, of course, that gives us a model for not only political engagement, but all of life engagement, not through violent subversion, but through self-sacrifice. So I, I gave a talk at a Bethlehem class at their college on Monday night on this, about how Christ's victory gives us a model for engagement in this world, and it's a cruciform engagement. It's of self-sacrifice. Jesus' message is somewhat mysterious because no other king has ever conquered through self-sacrifice. No ever king has become coronated by being raised up on a cross with a placard over his head that declares that he's the king of the Jews. And of course, that was only half right. He's the king of the world. Jesus proclaimed the good news that he was becoming the king. His anointing as king had set in motion a cross and resurrection-shaped process that would culminate in his complete liberating and cross and resurrection-shaped reign. The church exists to take up this gospel pronouncement and to live out the reality of King Jesus' rule over his kingdom. The church declares the fulfillment of the message, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus has now been installed at God's right hand where he rules as the eternal king. Now, I, I want to emphasize that we take on the cross and resurrection pattern of Christ's kingdom in our own lives. Just as Jesus died and rose again, all of Christ's kingdom citizens will die and rise again. So um, that, that's our way to embody Christ's kingdom values and to make his kingdom evident on this earth, is to live in the way of Christ, to be like Jesus, to be Christ-like. This is almost so basic that it doesn't need to be said, but it needs to be emphasized in connection to Jesus's kingdom and victory over sin and death and all other powers, because when we engage, when we're called to stand firm against these same powers, we're called to do so in imitation of Christ, not in some other way, not, not through the errors of the crusaders who thought we need to take up swords, um, not through the errors of culture warriors who think we need to just gain power in the political places, but in imitation of Christ who uh, continually gave up himself for others. Sadly, Jesus' kingly identity is often overlooked in explanations of the gospel. 
There are many reasons for this, especially in America, these revivalist periods of American history that brought together social progress, national identity, and a cultural appreciation of Christian morality. These things all were merged together in sometimes really good and sometimes really negative ways. Um, but we're children of the revivals. We, we stand on the shoulders of the first and second great awakenings. And if you read the literature of the second great awakening, for example, you'll start to see there was nothing really gospelly about this. This was just a call for social morality. And it's good for societies to exercise morality, but it's bad when you just call that Christianity. And that leads towards a certain legalistic frame of reference, not to mention a society-centric gospel instead of a Christ-centric gospel. So there are reasons that we forget that Jesus is king, and we don't include that in our gospel, but we need to um, counter those here. His kingly identity must be taken seriously as the center of the gospel message. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to skip a little bit here, but what I want to point out is that if we lose Christ as king, we lose the means by which he has authority to forgive sins. It's only by his messianic identity that Jesus forgives sins. You'll see this question raised in the gospel accounts when people ask, by whose authority can you forgive these sins? Well, Jesus, with a human identity only, has no authority to forgive sins. It's through his messianic kingly identity that the forgiveness of sins and kingdom citizenship can be offered to us. So if we jettison the source of forgiveness in kingdom identity, we lose forgiveness in kingdom identity as well. So there's this guy, John Stott, who wrote a book uh, calling out this problem where people want all of Christ's benefits, but they're happy to leave Christ to the side. We want Christ's benefits without Christ. And we can't have that. It doesn't work that way. You only have the king's benefits by entering under his kingly authority and participating in his kingly rule. Uh, I have it footnoted there in, in the notes. It's called The Whole Christ, Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance. And I have a Word document with the best quotes from it. If you would like that, just email me and let me know. So some articulations of the gospel separate Christ as, you know, Jesus, King, Messiah, from the benefits that he offers. But that's self-defeating because the source is cut off and the benefits are as well. Um, his benefits are royal in nature. So salvation and forgiveness from sin cannot be disconnected from his kingship and belonging to his kingdom. As a result, the gospel is personal, but it's never a matter of private spirituality or an independent relationship with Jesus. Those who come under the reign of King Jesus are entered into his kingdom along with other kingdom citizens, and we call that group of people the church. I will make one brief comment here. When I was in college, there was this big debate between lordship salvation guys and free grace guys. I, I think um, you might be hearing me saying, oh, you're just teaching us this lordship salvation thing if you're familiar with that debate. If you're not, just let this go right over your head for a second. The, the, that debate um, where Jesus is identified as Lord was talked about is Jesus is the Lord of my heart, not Jesus is king of the world in fulfillment of Israel's scripture. So even there, I want to make some slight differentiation between what was going on in that debate and what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus is gospel, created an alternative society, his kingdom, which we identify as the church, 
because even this lordship salvation identification, which was better than free grace gospel, even they had this mode of operating where you can have Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and that's it. Like, he, you have this privatized spiritual relationship with Jesus. That's different than what I'm arguing for here. So if you're thinking that's I'm just adopting that, that's not what I'm doing. The king is dead and raised again. And here, this author draws on this 1 Corinthians 15 um, summary of the gospel that we've already talked about. I, I want to slide down here uh, to Romans 1, this other gospel summary by Paul. I'm going to read you my translation of the text because it emphasizes some things that I think need to be emphasized. And um, here it is. I, Paul, am writing as a slave of King Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart to proclaim the gospel of God, which was previously promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, King Jesus, our Lord, by human lineage, descended from the seed of David, by the Holy Spirit, appointed to power as the Son of God at the time of his resurrection from the dead. King Jesus graciously commissioned me to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for his glory. I I think that's a really good summary of the gospel. Jesus is the king who took on and affirmed his authority in his resurrection from the dead. And now we, following in Paul, are commissioned to bring about the obedience of faith as we declare this gospel among all the nations for the glory of Christ. Uh, Here, I briefly just have listed those 10 points. In good counting, by the way, Julie, on identifying 10 features of that definition Jesus preexisted as God the Son, was sent by the Father, took on human flesh in fulfillment of God's promises to David, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, was buried, was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, appeared to many witnesses. And then here we get on to some uh, places where he draws from other summaries of the gospel in the New Testament. Is enthroned at the right hand of God as the ruling Christ, excuse me, has sent the Holy Spirit to his people to effect his rule, and will come again as final judge to rule. These 10 realities are the gospel precisely. Above all, the gospel is the true story about how Jesus became the victorious, saving king. Now, in future weeks, I want to talk more about some implications of this because the king does things. He calls people to faith and repentance. So we need to include these things. But the gospel is simply the good news of Jesus's kingship. There are many, many implications for this, but that has to be our starting point for our understanding and declaration of the gospel. We have a few minutes here, so I'm, well, we have one minute here, so I'm happy to answer any brief questions. Okay, I'll make one final comment then. As you hear us preach, and as you hear us calling you to embody the kingdom values of Christ and to submit to Christ's kingship, that is a central aspect of the gospel. So sometimes people think a sermon only includes the gospel if someone is asked to um, whether or not they know they're going to heaven when they die or when they're called upon to repent of their sins. But And, and there's something right about that. But I want you to understand that our, our sermons are filled with this call to enter into the kingdom of Christ under his kingly reign. I think this shows up over and over again in every everything that we do. Uh, and at times, we, we do want to say, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, we, we invite you, we welcome you, we call you to do, to do this. 
we, we don't like using that language of invite very often because there's not, at least to my count, there's not a single biblical invitation to salvation. There's an announcement of the gospel with the intended effect of bringing about the obedience of faith. It's not, hey, we'd like to invite you to this really nice, sweet spiritual guru thing. It's a proclamation. Jesus is king. So become part of his kingdom because he is going to rule the world. All right? Okay, we got to end here. Thanks for your attention.